This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam by Douglas Murray in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 2 – How We Got Hooked on Immigration with slight variations, during these decades almost exactly the same story had occurred everywhere across Western Europe. After the Second World War, each country had allowed and then encouraged workers to come into their countries. During the 1950s and 1960s, West Germany, Sweden, Holland, and Belgium, among other countries, all instituted a guest worker scheme to fill gaps in their labor supply across the continent that this Gasterbeiter scheme, as it was known in Germany, drew from similar countries. In Germany, the influx of workers came largely from Turkey, seeing a huge swell in numbers after the German-Turkish labor agreement of 1961. In Holland and Belgium, they came from Turkey, but also from North Africa and other countries that were once their colonies. While part of this influx of workers would serve to address labor shortages, especially in the low-skilled areas of the industrial sector, part of it was also a result of decolonization. In the 19th century, France had gone into North Africa and colonized portions of it, while Britain had colonized the Indian subcontinent. After the process of decolonization, to varying degrees, these former citizens, actually French citizens in the case of Algerians, were felt to be owed something, or at least to be given priority in the guest workers' schemes. The Empire Strikes Back concept suggests that it was inevitable, and perhaps even just, that in the 20th century, people from these former colonies should return the favor, albeit coming as citizens rather than conquerors. In each European country's case, the authorities labored under precisely the same misapprehensions as the British authorities, not least in believing that the first guest workers might prove a temporary phenomenon returning to their home countries once the work was done. Across the continent, it seemed to come as a surprise to governments that most of these workers would put down roots in the country they had entered, that they would seek to bring in their families, that their families would need assistance, and that their children would need to go to school. Once such roots had been put up, put down, there was less likelihood that they would ever be torn up again. And even if the lure of home remaining great, the standard of living these workers were able to enjoy in the West meant far more people stayed than returned to their country of origin. Although Europe had opened up its borders at a time of need, the country seemed to have no idea how attractive it was to much of the world, even in its diminished state. Even when the guest worker arrangement ended, as they did between Germany and Turkey in 1973, the people still came, and the people who had begun as guest workers became part of the countries they were in. Some gained citizenship, others enjoyed dual citizenship. Within five decades of this process beginning, in 2010, there were at least four people in Germany of Turkish origin alone. Some countries, notably France, took subtly different approaches to this. For instance, when France opened itself up to immigration from Algeria, it did so honoring the idea that, as Charles de Gaulle said in Algeria on June 4th of 1958, quote, In the whole of Algeria, there is only one category of inhabitant. There are only full French people with the same rights and the same duties. End quote. 
Nevertheless, when the movement from North Africa into France began in earnest, even de Gaulle privately conceded that France could only be open to other races so long as these people remained a small minority in the country. De Gaulle's confidants alleged that he himself was deeply uncertain that France could absorb many millions of incomers from other backgrounds. Yet, although there were differences in post-war immigration, each European country had the similar experience of a short-term policy creating the longest possible repercussions. Each country found itself playing endless catch-up, the result of the need to make major policy decisions on the hoof. And in each country, the debate similarly shifted with the decades. As the predictions of the 1950s were shown to be wrong, so were those of the subsequent decades. Expectations of the numbers that would come as opposed to the numbers that actually did come saw endless disparities in every country. And while government statistics told one story, the eyes of the European, of the European public told another. In response to public concern, governments and mainstream parties of all political stripes talked about controlling immigration, sometimes even getting stuck in a competition to sound tougher than each other on the matter. But as the years went on, it began to seem as though this might merely be an electoral trick. The gap between public opinion and political reality began to look like a gap caused by other factors than a lack of will or deafness to public concerns. Perhaps nothing was done to reverse the trend because no one in power believed anything could be done. If this was a political truth, then it remained wholly unmentionable. Nobody could get elected on such a platform, and so a continent-wide tradition arose of politicians saying things and making promises that they knew to be unachievable. Perhaps it is because of this that the principal reaction to the developing reality began to be to turn on those who expressed any concern about it, even when they reflected the views of the general public. Instead of addressing concerns, politicians and press began to throw accusations back at the public. This was done not just through charges of racism and bigotry, but in a series of deflecting tactics that became a replacement for action. All of these were identifiable in the wake of Britain's 2011 census, including the demand that the public should just get over it. In a column titled, Let's Not Dwell on Immigration, But Sow the Seeds of Integration, the then conservative mayor of London, Boris Johnson, responded to the census by saying, quote, We need to stop moaning about the dam burst. It's happened. There is nothing we can do now except make the process of absorption as eupeptic as possible, end quote. Sundar Katwala from the left-wing think tank British Future responded to the census in a similar tone, saying, quote, The question of do you want this to happen or don't you want this to happen implies that you've got a choice, and you could say, let's not have any diversity. But this was not possible, end quote. This is who we are. It's inevitable. Perhaps both left and right were simply saying that what any politician surveying the situation would have to say, but there is something cold about the tone of such remarks, not least the absence of any sense that there may be other people out there not willing to simply get over it, who dislike the alteration of, the soci of society and never asked for it. Indeed, it seemed to have struck neither Johnson nor Catwalla that there are those who may sustain a degree of anger about the fact that all main parties had for years taken a decision so wholly at variance with public opinion. At the very least, it seemed to occur 
to neither that there is something profoundly politically disenfranchising about such talk. Not only because it suggests a finality to a story that is in fact ongoing, but because it adopts a tone more ordinarily directed at some revanchist minority rather than toward a majority of the voting public. In the same month that these instances that people get over it emerged, a poll by YouGov found 67% of the British public believed that immigration over the previous decade had been a bad thing for Britain. Only 11% believed it had been a good thing. This included majorities among voters for every one of the three major parties. Poll after poll, both before and since, have found the same thing. As well as routinely prioritizing immigration as their number one concern, a majority of voters in Britain regularly described immigration as having a negative impact on their public services and housing through overcrowding, as well as harming the nation's sense of identity. Of course, the political impetus to draw a line and not get into any blame games raises the possibility that having got away with their mistakes to date, the politicians may feel ready, after such suitable imprecations, to repeat precisely the same mistakes in the future. By 2012, the leaders of every one of the major parties in Britain had conceded that immigration was too high, but even whilst doing so all had not insisted that the public should get over it. None had any clear, nor as it would turn out, successful policy on how to change course. Public opinion surveys suggest that a failure to do anything about immigration, even while talking about it, is one of the key causes of the breakdown in trust between the electorate and their political representatives. Yet, it is only the political class who cannot speak to the concerns of the majority of the general public. On the night of the 2011 census results were announced, the BBC's flagship discussion show, Newsnight, held a discussion of the news on which three-quarters of the participants expressed themselves perfectly delighted with the census and could see no cause for concern in the results. On that occasion, the philosopher A.C. Grayling, himself a hugely successful immigrant from Zambia, then northern Rhodesia, said of the findings of the census, quote, I think on the whole, it's a very positive thing, a thing to be celebrated, end quote. The critic and playwright Bonnie Greer, also a highly successful immigrant from America, agreed that it was a positive thing and said, like Boris Johnson, that it cannot be stopped. Over the whole discussion, the allure of this get with the beat attitude prevailed. Perhaps the temp temptation to go with the flow is so strong in this argument because the price for stepping outside the consensus is so uniquely high. Get a studio discussion about the budget wrong, and you might be accused of financial ignorance or poor interpretation of the public mood. But nod to the overwhelming public mood, let alone speak for it, on immigration and reputation, careers and livelihoods are on the line. Yet somewhere, lost in the middle of the hip consensus of the, that central London studio, was what almost entirely absent were the views of most people sitting at home a world that few people ever want, ever appear to want to put their finger on in public. The upsides of migration have become easy to talk about. To simply nod to them is to express values of openness, tolerance, and broad-mindedness. Yet to nod to, let alone express, the downsides of immigration is to invite accusations of closed-mindedness and intolerance, xenophobia, and barely disguised racism all of which leaves the attitude of the majority of the public almost impossible 
to express. For even if you do believe, as most people do, that some immigration is a good thing and that it makes a country a more interesting place, it does not follow that the more immigration the better. Nor does it mean, however many upsides there are, that there are not downsides which could be equally easy to state without accusations of malice. For mass immigration does not continue bringing the same levels of benefits to society the more people who come in. If it is possible to praise mass immigration for making us richer as a, as a whole, it should also be possible to explain that the process has made us poorer in some ways, not least in introducing or reintroducing cultural problems that we might have hoped never to see. The January before the release of the 2011 census results a gang of nine Muslim men, seven of Pakistani origin, two from North Africa, who were convicted and sentenced at the Old Bailey in London for sex trafficking, sex trafficking of children between the ages of 11 and 15. On that occasion, one of the victims sold into a form of modern-day slavery was a girl of 11 who was branded with the initial of her owner, M for Muhammad. The court heard that Muhammad branded her to make her his property, and to ensure that others knew about it. This did not happen in a, Sa in a Saudi or Pakistani backwater, nor even in one of the northern towns that so much of the country had forgotten about, and which had seen many similar cases over the same period. This happened in Oxfordshire between 2004 and 2012. Nobody could argue that gang rape or child abuse are the preserve of immigrants, but the development of particular types of child gang child rape gangs revealed and a sub subsequent government commission inquiry, inquiry confirmed specific cultural ideas and attitudes that were clearly held by some immigrants. These include views about women, specifically non-Muslim women, other religions, races, and sexual minorities that were pre-medieval. Fears of accusations of racism for pointing out such facts in the small but salutary number of careers like Ray Honeyford's that had been publicly wrecked for saying far less meant that it took years for even such facts as these to come out. This has a terrorizing effect far beyond the nation's television studios and with far more serious consequences. When these gang rape cases came to court, they did so in spite of local police, counselors, and care workers, many of whom were discovered to have failed to report such crimes involving immigrant gangs for fear of accusations of racism. The media followed suit, filling their reports with euphemisms as though trying to avoid helping the public to draw any conclusions. So in cases like those in Oxfordshire, the gangs were described as Asian when they were almost solely involving Muslim men of Pakistani origin. The fact that their victims were chosen precisely because they were not Muslim was only occasionally mentioned in the courts, and rarely dwelt upon by the press. Instead of carrying out their jobs without fear or favor, police, prosecutors, and journalists behaved as though their job was to mediate between the public and the facts. Naturally, none of this ever comes up in any acceptable discussion on immigration. Introducing gang rape to a BBC discussion on immigration would be like introducing bestiality to a documentary on sickly pets. Only the good and happy can be dwelt upon, while the bad is ignored. And it is not only the harder edges of the discussion that get lost, but the softer everyday concerns that people have. Not savage denunciations, but simple regret that the society they grew up in has been charged without care for the views of the majority of the people.
The other thing lost in the cozy, nonsensual news night style of discussion is any reference to what we used to call our culture. As ever, amid the endless celebrations of diversity, the greatest irony of all remains that the one thing people cannot bring themselves to celebrate is the culture that encouraged the diversity in the first place. In the whole political and press reaction to the 2011 census, one saw once again the various staging posts of a direction of travel that is profoundly self-annihilating. One such claim is that even after a period of such extraordinary change as Britain had been through in the recent decades, quote, it's nothing new, end quote. This argument can be heard across Europe, but in Britain, it now most often goes as follows, quote, Britain has always been a melting pot of people of different races and backgrounds. Indeed, we are a nation of immigrants. This was the claim, for instance, of a well-received book on immigration by Robert Winder that came out during the Blair years and was often used to defend the government's policies. Among other things, the book argued that we are all immigrants. It is simply depending on how far back you go. The book also claimed that Britain has always been a mongrel nation. Here is Barbara Roche making the same claim in a talk about the East End of London in 2011. Quote, when we think of immigration or migration, it's very tempting to think that it's something that happened in the 19th century. I'm Jewish. Some of my family came in the late 19th century. I'm Sephardi on my mother's side, so some of my family came way before that. There is a tendency to think that it's somehow quite recent. If it isn't 19th century, then it's very much something that is a post-war phenomenon, but nothing could be further from the truth. I've always believed that Britain is a country of migrants." End quote. Of course, Miss Roche is welcome to believe this, but that does not make it true. Until the latter half of the last century, Britain had almost negligible levels of immigration. Unlike America, for instance, Britain had never been a, ma a nation of immigrants. And although there was often a trickle of people moving in, the mass movement of people was almost unknown. In fact, immigration was so unknown that when it did happen, people talked about it for centuries. When discussing migration into the United Kingdom today, one can expect someone to mention the Huguenots, those Protestants forced to flee persecution in France to whom Charles II offered sanctuary in 1681. The Huguenot example is more resonant than people realize. Firstly, because despite the proximity of culture and religion enjoyed by French and English Protestants at the time, it took, it took centuries for the Huguenots to integrate into Britain with many people still describing themselves as coming from Huguenot stock. But the other salient point about the Huguenots, and the reason people cite them so frequently, is a matter of scale. It is believed that up to 50,000 Huguenots arrived in Britain after 1681, which was undoubtedly a huge movement for the time. But this scale was wholly different league to the mass migration Britain has seen in recent years. From the period of the Blair government onwards, Britain has seen an equal number of immigrants to that one-off number of Huguenots arriving not once in the nation's history, but every couple of months. This immigration was by no means composed of French Protestants. Another example often given to defend the nation of immigrants story is that of the 30,000 Ugandan Asians who were brought into Britain in the early 1970s after Idi Amin expelled them from Uganda. In the UK memories of this one-off influx are generally colored with pride and good feeling, not just because it was a demonstrable and limited relief of a desperate people, 
but because those Ugandan Asians who arrived in Britain often made a palpable and grateful contribution to public life. In the post-1997 years of immigration, the same number of people as that one-off 30,000-strong influx arrived into the country every six weeks. The movement of people in recent years, even before the European migration crisis, was of an entirely different quality, quantity, and consistency from anything that had gone on before. Yet, despite this fact, it remains one of the most popular ways to cover the vast changes of recent years to pretend that history was similar to what it is happening now. Not the least advantages of this suggestion is that any current problems arising from migration are nothing we haven't dealt with and triumphed over before. It falsely presents any current challenges as normal. But revising the past is just one attempt at a staging post argument. After this come a whole range of implicit and explicit claims which respond to mass immigration by pretending either that the country of arrival does not have a culture or that its culture and identity are so especially weak, worn out, or bad that if it did disappear, then it could hardly be mourned. Here is Bonnie Greer again on news site, quote, There's always this failsafe, spoken or unspoken, that there is a British identity. That's always interesting to me. I think one of the geniuses of the British, of the British, of being British, is that there isn't any sort of rock-solid definition of identity that an American has. End quote. It is hard to think of another part of the world where such a claim would be acceptable, let alone from the mouth of an immigrant. Your culture has always been like this. It never really existed. If one even said anything similar in Greer's native Chicago— let alone on the main television network, it would be unlikely to receive such a polite reception as it was accorded on Newsnight. Harsher examples of this argument have abounded during the era of mass immigration. In 2006, Channel 4 screened a documentary called 100% English. This program took a group of white British people whom it clearly believed were racists, including Margaret Thatcher's loyal cabinet colleague Norman Tebbit, and performed DNA tests on them. The test results were then used to prove that all of the people in question were in fact foreigners. The results were, pro- were produced triumphantly to each of the subjects in order to point to the same conclusion. You see, we're all foreigners really. There's no need to feel any concern about immigration or national identity. Of course, again, nobody would conceivably be so rude as to do this to any other group of people. But with British and other European peoples, different rules of engagement had begun to imply. All appeared to be methods of coping with a change that, if it cannot be stopped, must be solved by alterations in the minds of the host countries. Down the line, there is another starker rebuttal. This says that this form of destruction is exactly what these societies deserve. Saying, do you know what white people did, they ask, and you Europeans in particular? They traveled around the world and lived in countries and pillaged them and tried to erase their local cultures. This is payback or karma. The novelist Will Self, currently professor of contemporary thought at Brunel University, played precisely this line of attack on the BBC in the same week that the 2011 census was published. On the network's main discussion show, Question Time, he declared, quote, Up to the Suez crisis, most people's conception of what being British involved was basically going overseas and subjugating black and brown people and taking their stuff in the fruits of their labors. That was a core part of British identity, the British Empire. 
Now, various members of the political class have tried to receive that idea quite recently without much success. Leaving aside that claim that any member of the political class has tried to revive the British Empire in recent years, in these comments one can hear the authentic and undisguised voice of revenge, demonstrating that such instinct transcends racial or religious boundaries and can as easily be self-induced as aimed at others, it suggests that, on this occasion, Britain itself must be uniquely punished for the deeds in history. The repercussions of the argument are striking to consider. For if this is even partially a spur for the recent transformation of our country, then what are we going to do through is not an accident or a mere laxness at the borders, but a cool and deliberate act of national sabotage. Motivations aside, this also throws up the ultimate questions that our politicals remain so unwilling to address. How much longer must this go on? Are we approaching the end of the transformation, or is this only the beginning? The 2011 census could have provided a wonderful opportunity to address this, and it was, like every opportunity since the Second World War in the discussion about immigration, wretchedly missed. It was not just the fact that no answers were given, but that so few pertinent questions were asked. For example, amid all the complacency surrounding these developments, nobody asked this question. If the fact that white Britons now composed a minority in their capital city was a demonstration of diversity, when might it cease to be so? The census had shown that some London boroughs were already lacking in diversity, not because there weren't enough people of immigrant origin, but because there weren't enough white British people around to make those boroughs diverse. In the years since the 2011 census, the number of migrants into Britain has continued to soar, and the gap between official and actual figures continues to vary hugely. One indication of the fact is that although the net migration figures for each year since the 2011 census has been far in excess of 300,000, the new number of national insurance numbers issued each year, because they are required for work, has been more than double that. The rising population of the United Kingdom is now almost entirely due to immigration and to higher birth rates among immigrants. In 2014, women who were born overseas accounted for 27% of all live births in England and Wales, and 33% of newborn babies had at least one immigrant parent, a figure that had doubled since the 1990s. On current population trends, and without any further rise on the number of immigrants, the most modest estimate by the ONS of the future British population is that it will rise from its current level of 65 to 70 million within a decade, 77 million by 2050, and more than 80 million by 2060. But this estimate assumes immigration to be beneath current levels. Whereas at the post-2011 levels were to continue, the UK population would go above 80 million as early as 2040, and as high as 90 million, a 50% increase from 2011, by 2060. Demographic predictions are a notoriously tricky area, with enough variables to make fools of many. But among serious academic demog demographers, there is a consensus that even without migration at the rate it has occurred in recent years, the demographic makeup of the country will change even more significantly within the, life the lifespan of the people reading this book. 
For instance, David Coleman, a professor of demography at Oxford, has shows that on current trends, the people who identified themselves as white British in the 2011 census will cease to be a majority in the UK in the 2060s. However, he stresses that if current levels of immigration in Britain continue, let alone rise, that number will move closer to the present. It would be a time when, as Professor Coleman says, Britain would become unrecognizable to its present inhabitants. Perhaps instead of simply celebrating such levels of immigration, it would make matters easier. If the proponents of mass immigration revealed what levels of diversity they would like to get to and what they see as their optimal target figure, is a ceiling of 25% white people in London or the country at large a target, or should it be 10% or none at all? A final and perhaps harder question to ask would be when, if at all, given the range of claims against them, these white Britons might ever be able to acceptably argue, let alone complain about their odds. Barring any drastic plan by a British government intent on averting such a trend, it is hard to see how this process could fail to continue. Not only because consecutive governments have shown themselves so incapable of predicting or anticipating anything in the area of migration for the last 70 years, but because the objection to any such plan would continue to be so considerable. Consider Will Self again, speaking to a wild studio applause on the BBC after the 2011 findings were released. Quote, the people who line up on the opposition to the immigration line of the argument are usually racists, with an antipathy to people, particularly with black and brown skins. End quote. Having long ago reached the point where the only thing white Britons could do was to remain silent about the change in their country, at some point in recent years, it began to appear as though they were expected simply to get on, silently but contentedly, with abolishing themselves, accepting the knocks and accepting the loss of their country. Get over it. It's nothing new. You were terrible, and now you are nothing. In all this, it is impossible not to notice the striking level of vindictiveness around the manner in which the concerns of British people, and the white working and middle classes in particular, have been met by politicians and pundits alike. Perhaps at some point the just-lying-down-and-taking-it period will stop, with the repercussions quite as unforeseeable as all those to date. But in the meantime, if any politician wanted to try to preempt the, that eventuality and felt like indulging in an act of humility, he or she could do worse than go back to the point at which we started. Compare the statements derided as cliches that have come, come from so many working and middle class white voters in recent years and set them alongside the statements of the leaders of each of the mainstream political parties. All these years on, despite the name-calling and insults and the ignoring of their concerns, were your derided average white voters not correct when they said that they were losing their country? Irrespective of whether you think that they should have thought this, let, in, let alone whether they should have said it, said it differently or accepted, accepted the change more readily, it should at, sta at some stage cause people to pause and reflect that the voices almost everybody wanted to demonize and dismiss were in the final analysis the voices whose predictions were the nearest to being right. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.